this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. And Jay, our Dig Me Out Union is responsible for this episode because it's a poll episode. Absolutely. This one, this one was pretty uh, vocal. I would say in terms of people got into it. I, yep. I was not expecting the, for the, epi- or the uh, options that were in this poll, there were a lot more people talking about the ones I was not expecting than the ones that I thought people would be talking about. And what I'm talking about is may we'd eight, eight albums suggested by people who through our website, you know, gave us a little description of why they were picking it. We had a good selection. I mean, there wasn't like a runaway, there's no, there was no like the Verve or massive yeah. attack where I thought, oh, that's definitely gonna get picked, and then they didn't get picked. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though we're not real good at picking these winners, right? I'm actually thinking we should about have a little side, a, a little side thing going on where you can actually bet on the winners. That's what I was thinking. We need to get this set up with a bookie. Because <laughs> I, I got to tell you, it's not predictable. It is not predictable at all. So for the May. Uh, poll, which was, as I mentioned, people through our website, digmeoutpodcast.com, they, they made the suggestions through there. Uh, they gave us some interesting titles, and the winner, with nine votes of the uh, 34, 34 votes that were cast, Slint's Spiderland. That was suggested by Nick J. Now, why did Nick pick this? What, what was his comment? Would love to get your take on it. Okay, we can do that, Nick. The mm-hmm. circumstances behind the creation of this album makes it accidental genius. There's an, there's even a documentary about it by Lance Bangs. Check it out if you haven't. And if you haven't, I'm not seeing it. Disregard this email. So, no, we have not uh, nope. reviewed this record. That's um, one of the criteria <laughs> is that we haven't reviewed it. True. Uh other criteria would be it was released in the 90s. <laughs> yep. Um, it's actually music. <laughs> it's an album length. So, right. We have not, we have not launched so you, the... Uh, you just made it. You just passed. Yeah, the EP-only podcast. Or the, or the single, the, the CD single, which would be once one album track plus you know a remix or a, or a live track. They yeah. do that on the, the CD singles. Some of those CD singles had some good B-sides. I have to say, some bands were were not skimpy on their B sides. Others, but th- were. This album, I guess, to that point he made about the documentary, it seems to be fairly well reviewed and documented. So, for a very specific audience, yes. So, if you don't like our review, you're probably of that audience, right? You may want to go check out that documentary, right? <laughs> well. Go to the Wait a YouTube minute. I don't and enter know what you're Slint. saying about your review. I have, we haven't. <laughs> I'm just saying, just in, in case. Okay. You disagree. There are plenty of other reviews out there of this record that you can go 
yeah, check out. This is a very, this is a well-reviewed record in terms of the volume of reviews it has received. We sometimes we get albums and there's one review we can find online. This one is not the case. Right. Now, this was a close poll because just one vote behind was Trouble Charger, their self-titled release. And then there was kind of a a, a traffic jam at around 2, 3 and 4 votes. That's yep. where you had the Tinder Sticks with their self-titled album. You had Diggs, Defenders of the Universe, Mark Curry's It's Only Time, Small Factories for If You Cannot Fly, Cecil's Subtitles, and then coming in last was the Ah Club, Kiss the Sky Goodbye. Now, based on the chatter on Facebook, Cecil and Mark Curry seemed like the two yeah. that were going to be the, the leaders, but what matters is the Patreon poll, and that's yep. where Slint pulled ahead. Now, what's curious is always the number of people who say in the comments what they're voting for actually matching up with what the poll is. So let's get the, to the comments. Let's go down the line here. And so what people actually were, were talking about, we should review. So Jim Lozowski said, another tough call between Tinder Sticks and Slint. Mark Curry's record, too, is hugely underrated. That song, Sorry About the Weather, may be a, a bit lyrically simplistic, but I adore it. I'm sure whichever title wins here, you'll be golden. So I don't know what he picked. It was one of those three. Uh, Scott Witt said, I went with the Ah Club once again just for the band name. Good good for you, Scott. Thank you. (laughs) That works. Uh, So wait a minute, wait a minute. The Ah Club got one vote, and that was Scott's vote. (laughs) David Haverland said, I remember the Treble Charger album as being excellent. Time to revisit myself. So I'm going to assume he voted for Treble Charger. Chris Jones said, having lived in Los Angeles at the time Mark Curry landed, started playing tiny clubs and seeing this kid, underdog kid from Sacramento get a seven-album recording deal with Virgin America was exhilarating to witness and be a part of. I always root for the underdog, and I feel this album isn't done turning heads and making friends. Cheers to all the underdogs, and cheers to Mark Curry. And his first album, It's Only Time, still relevant today as it was in 1992. It's sound and message doesn't scream 90s. It's a timeless classic and 100% relatable. So Whitney Beeler, slint, please. So there's our first slint vote. Ian Wobble, Tinder Sticks, criminally underrated. Gary Moran, I'd like to hear all these. I voted for Trouble Charger because I've always enjoyed the Maybe It's Me album. Come on, where are the slint votes coming from? All right, I, this is the ghost votes. They are Keith Sawyer. Well, I agree that Tinder Slick, Tinder Slick, Tinder Sticks, and Slint are the standouts here. Both bands. <laughs> I love Tinder Slint. <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> Tinder Stick songs in the in the vein of Slint. That would be interesting. He says both both bands at the pinnacle of their powers, though on very different sides of the musical spectrum. But I'll cast a vote for Treble Charger as I enjoy the Swerve Driver Yatsura vibe of the first one. I don't know what Yatsura is. I thought that I I, I, I thought it was an auto manufacturer. I don't know. Yeah. Isn't that like uh, Mopar for Toyota? Yeah. Yatsura. Uh, and then um, Darren Leach said, I heard of the Tinder Sticks prior to this, but I never gave them a go back in the 90s upon listening for this poll. I found it really hard going. I struggled to get through the whole album. I never got into Slint back in the 90s and still don't get them today. Hmm. 
There's plenty of albums I haven't heard, but Small Factory caught my ear. I love the up to, upbeat vibe of this album. Uh, Scott Hallgram says, Tough Call Between Tindersticks and Dig. Haven't you already done the first self-titled Tindersticks record? I'd vote for that. No, we haven't. We are Tindersticks free. And then Johnny Hooper said, oh my God, what are we debating here? It's slint for the love of Pete. So that's two votes. Two of the nine votes people chimed in with their comments. He says, call it post-rock, call it math-rock, call it whatever you want. I call it brilliant. Are you kidding me? This record came out in 91 and was made by kids barely past their teens. Spiraland created a new musical language that others continue to ape to this day, and nothing sounds like it. Good Morning Captain is one of, the, one of alternative rock's most compelling songs. Jay, had you listened Damn. to Slint prior to this episode? F no. No, I mean, I was aware of it, I think, um, mm. to some degree. The album cover seemed familiar. The band name seemed familiar. Um, I generally knew it was, it was beloved by a, a minority. But that's it. Okay. I had listened to it, but only in passing to check it out when I started hearing about it in the 2000s. I did not check it out when it came out, nor in the years after. It might have even been up until when they did the re-release of the remastered version in 2014. Which I, I I did not listen to the remastered version. I listened. I have the MP3s of the original version, like ripped from a CD. So, but not at ninety two (laughs) k. Ah, that time you ripped your entire CD collection at ninety two k and then sold all the CDs. Yeah, that was a that was a that was a mistake. (laughs) What can I ever? Why else would I ever need these? These are just holding me back, man. <laughs> I got I got them in full 92K fidelity. Why am I ever, ever going to need this Failure Fantastic Planet album on CD? <laughs> oh, what a mistake. <laughs> 800 CDs out the, out the door. Hey, I got my 5 gigabyte hard drive completely full. <laughs> I'm good forever. How could I How could I ever <laughs> Imagine filling five gigabytes of a hard drive. Uh, it's, this is some serious nerd talk here. Um, so for people who don't know, just very briefly, Slint were from Louisville, Kentucky. They were active a couple different periods, um, 86 to 90 and then off and on in the 90s, like 92, 94, and then they got back together in 2005 for a year, then 2007, and then again in 2013 and 2014. Um, 
they have connections to a lot of different bands. The it was originally Brian McMahon on guitar and vocals, uh, Ethan Buckler on bass, Britt Walford on drums, David Pajo on guitar, and then after the recording of their first record, which is called Tweez, uh, Ethan left the band and was replaced by Todd Brashear. So the lineup for Spiderland is McMahon, Pajo, Walford, and Brashear. And then when they got together all those other times, they've always had uh, they've had multitude of different bass players. And I believe also uh, Michael McMahon stepped in for some guitar stuff um, for David Pajo. And I think Michael McMahon might be Brian McMahon's brother. So they only released two albums. Tweez was released in 1989. That was released on Touch and Go, and it was produced by Steve Albini. And then Spiderland was also released on Touch and Go. That was produced by Brian Paulson. Now, that's an interesting name to be connected with this band. Because Brian Paulson is mostly known for producing albums by Uncle Tupelo, Sunvolt, and Wilco. Those are like the the names that I know him from. Um, he's also produced albums or worked on albums by people like Magnapop, Dinosaur Jr., Squirrel Nut Zippers, Super Chunk, Something for Kate, which we've reviewed, uh, Cracker, The Sea and Cake. So interesting producer choice for this record. Um, and then the be- members of this band have gone on to a variety of different things. David Pajo famously was in Zwan with Billy Corgan. Um, he's also been a member of Tortoise and was in bass, played bass for a while in Interpol after their original bass player left. And he's played with the Yaya Yaz as a musician on like live touring. Um, hmm. The drummer, Britt Walford, played drums on the Breeders album Pod, which we reviewed, but he played under a pseudonym. Brian McMahon has played with Will Oldham in the band Palace, which David Pajo has also played in. So they have a connection to quite a different number of bands. And as I mentioned, this album was re-released in 2014 with a DVD that called uh, Breadcrumb Trail that uh, it's a 90 minute documentary shot over the course of 12 years that uh, documents the band and they were all very young when they made these records like just out of high school you know pre-20s at the time well when they formed and then I I think they might have been like 2021 when they made this record because they were only like I said they were only together for originally four years so Whitney Beeler just added a uh, live comment. I started listening to Livecast. I know nothing about Slint, but AllMusic.com gave this album five stars of five stars, mm-hmm. which is why I voted for it. So tell me, do I like this? <laughs> I think that's a good setup. Whitney, we can't tell you if you like things. <laughs> I will say, before we get into this, I heard... A lot of what we have talked about on this show, I have heard. I heard a lot of it in this band. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute. Are you kicking us off with what you liked? No, I'm just telling you what what I heard in terms of like 
connecting it to other stuff, which we'll get into when we talk about this record. All right. Well, tell me more. Well, okay. Well, the one thing I'll tell you that I liked, if I'm going to just go first in that. Let's go. Is Let's the switch dy- it up. Is the dynamics. Okay. You know, this is when you're talking about indie rock and math rock and post rock, those rock subgenres of alternative rock. Um, you know, this is a really early band in that era. This is this is kind of the a, a grandfather of a lot of those bands, and they do a really interesting job of of melding the loud quiet in a way that works really well but doesn't do it in that i would say commercial way is a weird way to say it that like nirvana or you know 90s radio friendly bands do it they do it in a much more organic and sonic youth meets velvet underground and television kind of way this this very like anti-radio I mean even the structure of the album I mean it's the six songs every song it's really built around tension and release which is really cool and musically I love it when the guitars kick in like I I think the guitar sound really pops on this record with how they produced it and it sounds big and nasty and it sounds heavy in a way that's you don't get from a lot of indie rock because it doesn't sound menacing in the way that like listening to certain like metal would sound and there's almost a a connection to like some like doomy kind of metal sounds that would come much later that are that are possibly traced back to this band or bands that are similar to it that I dug. So I, I really, I guess I would say listening to this, I really enjoyed what was gone going on musically. I could hear listening to this bands like bitch magnet that we've talked about bark market Chavez, you know, those sorts of bands. I can hear where, they're coming. I mean, Sunday Real Estate. I can hear in this band. Um, there's there's a, a lot of what we've talked about is there. I can hear the roots of it in hmm. this particular band. Um, in terms of that, really, really quiet and and subtle sound, and then exploding into a huge, dirty, you know, nasty sound. What worked for you, Jay? Well, um, the restraint is, is remarkable. Um, I think a lot of this record though, you have to, I see uh, it caveated in the release date and the age of the band. Um, I struggle with that a little bit, but I think overall the restraint is, is remarkable. Um, the subtlety and dynamics, um, I think is in, is inventive for alternative rock. What a, however you want to define that. I do like the, the dryness of the record. Um, I'm a sucker for records that mm-hmm. are just produced in a very honest, almost rehearsal space kind of sound. 
Um, I like when a record creates an environment where when you're listening to it, you can close your eyes and, and, and kind of um, imagine a, a particular space that you're, you're experiencing the music in. So for this band, that means, I think, to my ears, no reverb whatsoever. I mean, it is dry as dry could be. Is it Steve Albini produced this? No, he did the first one. Brian Polson okay. was the producer on this. I really enjoy that. I think it still sounds, um, for the most part, re- really, really good. Um, the drums kind of create the ambience. The Just the natural reverb in the room that drums are recorded is, is about a, a much of as much of a definition of a room as you get. Um, so I think a lot of the clean guitar parts and bass interplay works really well with this kind of engineering and produ- production approach. And overall, that just means like there's a lot of ability to move and create dynamics while still remaining relatively, you know, quiet. And I think, you know, to your point that when they do get loud, it really is a dramatic um, dynamic shift. So, you know, there's a lot of sophistication in that that aspect of the the way kind of the Mm -hmm. music is presented and performed. There's also a lot of sophistication in what they're playing. Like if you really like concentrate in on like their time signatures and it sounds like a lot of times they're doing very simple motifs musically, but actually, and this is going to be like, you're going to be like, Tim, what are you talking about? But I started, (laughs) I started listening to this going, this is what Rush would sounded like as an indie rock band. Like, oh boy! Because when you listen to Neil Peart play drums, for example, he will do you know these amazing, you know, drum parts. But then he will do like really subtle shifts in what he's doing between like the first time through and the second time through, and then the second time to the third time and third. He would just change up his hi hat pattern just a little bit, but he'll repeat that like the second time through he'll play it this way every time, and then the third time through he'll change it just a little bit and he'll change where the accent is. That's what this band is doing a lot of times, either in the guitars or the rhythm section. They're throwing in these like weird progressive little parts that are very subtle. But if you listen to it like I did, because this is actually pretty short, you can listen to it, you know, 40 times in a in a day if you want to. And um, you start picking up on these little like guitar lines where like the first time they play this guitar line, they play it regular and then the second time they cut off a note at the end or they add an extra note at the end and then the third time they play it the first way and then the fourth time they play it a completely different way than the first second or third time and i'm like what's going on here like i'm trying to figure out how they're getting back to the right on back onto the one each time and it made me start thinking about rush because i was like oh this is this is nerdy indie you know this would be like for people who like rush but in the indie rock world that's interesting. So uh, I saw this album uh, described as math rock. I got to be honest. I like complicated music. I've never understood what math rock means. Uh, every time I hear a band referred to as math rock, I listen to it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't get it. Why it's why they're calling it that. Um, I think it's playing around with time signatures in really yeah, no, like Polvo yeah. and even Hum can get into some math rock stuff. Like when they, they, they have songs that are in like seven, eight. Yeah, that are like really bizarre. Yeah, I guess so. That's that's an expectation from to me that it's going to be really overtly mm-hmm. challenging from a time standpoint. I, I guess if you maybe you analyze it deeper than I was. I mean, I was listening pretty close, trying to 
listen for the the complexity and I was we're having a really hard time through large sequences of this record really hearing that. I just heard like repeated two chord patterns over and over again with alternating two chord patterns on top of it for large sections of the record. Hmm. Um, so I, I was maybe it was my expectations. I was expecting a lot more adventurous in terms of timing and didn't necessarily hear that. So, and I gotta say, I don't like the distortion sound of this record at all. I think what they're doing is they're using the um, the Boss heavy metal pedal, which I think aligns with what you're hearing from like a little sharper, more aggressive, nastier kind of distortion sound as opposed to a fuzz. But man, it is not a good sound. Um, it sounds like a brittle static. So I I, I really would love to hear. I don't know. I just a different approach when the songs get louder, a, a different guitar tone um, to really make it fuller and explosive. I just hear kind of like a brittle static instead of a big explosive fat guitar tone. Whitney says, I hear Shiner, The Life and Times, Shudder to Think, and First Wave Hello. I can definitely pick up on that with, well, especially with regards to Shiner and Life and Times, when they just will sort of hit a big chord and just let the distortion ring out and get into like a repetitive, you know, rhythm uh, repetitive rhythm or or guitar riff section even more so on life and times which can get very drony in in a lot of parts i just think of that stuff as being so much more layered and and lush and complex i agree Uh, with you but when you place this in the context of this was five to ten years ahead of all that boom that's what i'm saying like that's what I challenge. I I'm challenged with this record is I to really appreciate it. I have to like contextualize it to 1991 and the fact that these are a bunch of young guys. Right. I can't appreciate it in 2019. Well, I think you can. I I think if you're not into this music as a visceral experience, you can listen to it and go, "Oh, I hear where so many bands were were you know." getting influenced and developing their sounds. And that might not even be that true because I mean, yes, this was on touch and go and touch and go had for a period, a very solid loyal listenership. You know, people would go, Oh, that's on touch and go. I'm going to check it out. Cause that's a, that's a tastemaker label. Lots of amazing stuff has been released in there. So I'm so, I'm sure a lot of people who were musicians picked up this record and it influenced them and I know that the general audience didn't. I mean, the band broke up before the record even came out. It's one of those classic. They made the record and they were like, done. Yep. So it's not like they were even going to capitalize on, you know, the record 
even if it was influential and it has sold far more copies from what i've read in like the last 15 years than it did in the first 20 or in the, in the first 10 so it's a clearly well, a case quota. of like uh people appreciating it in retrospect than it than at the time yeah the uh i watched a little youtube um documentary about it and it was i think it was steve albini talking about how um It's unique in that it sold a thousand copies the first year, and it sold a thousand copies the second year, and it sold a thousand copies the third year, and then it continues to sell a thousand copies every year. And like, that's what makes it um, so bizarre, right? Because I mean, most records we review is, you know, uh, maybe they sold ten thousand on release or fifty thousand, and then they've sold nothing since. Right. Yeah. There's definitely something about this that connects and i get and i i, I am a fan of the I, I love shiner i love life and times i love shiner to think this sounds like the prototype for that stuff which i struggle with a little bit which makes me go back and have to contextualize it sure and kind of make excuses for it which um it, it just i i get it as a as a person who loves music i can appreciate it from that standpoint but just i think to be fair when we review these records like i want to also be able to position whether or not you're going to turn this on in 2019 with no backstory and nothing and just experience it as pure music and if you're gonna get it and it's difficult to um right i think get now in the same way that uh oh what was a record we just reviewed recently where we had the same kind of take where we were having to go back to uh the late 90s to appreciate it a uh, promise ring okay yeah was the same kind of to me experience where I had to go back. I put myself in that situation, um, in that mindset to kind of completely start to understand why this record is revered. I, where are you at with the vocals? I don't love the vocals. I'm not a fan of the spoken word stuff. It's very hushed in and hard to decipher most of what he's singing or, or speaking. And, um, that's just never been and i understand i see it as like a i mean you can hear so many bands that would have styles similar to this and it just doesn't it's just not my thing as far as vocals go and i i totally like i get why it's attractive to some people but i need a little bit more in the in the way of like melody and something to hook my brain into and it's got to work for me or it doesn't. And it just doesn't work for me. Well, I would say at the, you know, at, um, on the surface, it adds nothing to the music. Um, so it seems not essential. Uh, I suppose if you really love the music and you could become obsessed with this record, uh, maybe at that point you start actually, listening to what he's saying and maybe there's some meaning there i'm not there yet it would probably take me a couple um dozen more listens before i would get to that level um so it's if you're gonna do a vocal like this man you gotta like really grab me with some compelling lyrics um or you have to say singer you gotta be like jeremy enoch well, I, I mean, as a spoken vocal, if you're going to do yeah. a spoken vocal, like, man, you better be Henry Rollins or something. Like, you got to get me with some amazing thoughts and really um, compelling uh, lyrics. And I, I don't, I can't, I, I'm not having got to the point where I can even decipher what he's talking about. It's just like mumbling in the background. Right. 
And then occasionally when the music amps up, he'll scream. Yeah. Which is fine. That's totally fine when he does that. It's, but it's the most of it is not all that compelling. And there's what's interesting is that there's a couple of um, tracks that were released. Well, there's there's yeah, on the remastered version. I did check out some of the bonus tracks just to hear what like demos and stuff sounded like, because there's not a whole lot of material. And then there's a couple songs that were released in between the two albums. They're just like two instrumental songs. And I was like, I kind of just like this band as an instrumental band. Right. That's what I'm saying. The book only doesn't add anything. Right. I'm never well, going to be one that's going to totally love this style what are your standout tracks without getting to our rating let's say somebody came to you and said hey what's slint sound like what's the what song should i listen to what song are you going to tell them to go to well good morning captain would be my i think would be my first pick i do think that the i don't know what the effect is but there is like this on the bass there's like this warbly sound do you know what i'm talking about no I, the only effect, honestly, on this record, I analyzed that a little bit, and the only effect I could really pull out was just that heavy metal, that boss heavy metal distortion sound. Other than that, it made it sound like pure tones to me through an amp. I guess, and, and I, you know, breadcrumb trail from a perspective of the opener, I think is a is a really cool musically is a very cool song. When they get into like Washer, which you know has. I hear that and I go, oh, I hear so many different, I hear the Shiner, yeah, that kind of stuff. But it's eight minutes of like just sort of the same vibe. <laughs> I could have used some dynamic to that yeah. track. Well, that's where I, so that was my, that would be my standout track. And I guess I, I ended up in this band with this band, appreciating them as an ambient kind of experience hmm. as opposed to a math rock thing. To me, math rock is like, man, it should be like pulling your brain and twisting you around and like making you rethink reality. And what, to like me, twenty one twelve is what you're saying. <laughs> well, it should be like just surprises and unexpected. You know, not doing things that aren't expected. And to me, this when it worked was more ambient. It was just something I I enjoyed more when I had it on and was, you know working on something and could kind of just let it wash all over me and feel it. Um, when I analyzed it, I, I did not enjoy it as much at all. In fact, when I sat down to do my notes, I was more annoyed by the record than I was, um, previously when I just, even when I was driving and listening to it, I found it way more enjoyable than when I actually tried to analyze it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think math rock is great for analyzing you know, usually for me, we do a record that's more progressive and has a lot of dynamics and changes and time signature stuff. Like, sure, my notes are all over the place, and like I'm just eating that up as my brain is processing it that way. Whereas, you know, if I'm trying to just focus and concentrate and write or, you know, do something, you know, oftentimes overly progressive music is like too much. <laughs> it's too distracting. So, um, I, I enjoyed the ambient moments of this a little bit more. I like the. The cleaner sounds, I like the picking in interplay um, with the bass and guitar around that. So to me, like Washer would be more of a standout track.
your pockets with the dust of the memory rises from the shoes on my feet. I won't be back here. Interesting. Interesting. So, Jay, let's talk about whether this is going to get on the radio in 19... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, like, here's some good perspective. Um, about the same time this band was writing this record, um, Warrant was writing Cherry Pie. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe that helps us appreciate it a little bit more. And and not that far from each other. Right. Geographically <laughs> speaking. Uh because of course, well, I'm sure Warrant was not in Cleveland when they were writing Cherry Pie. They're probably probably out in L.A. Of course. Yeah, I I don't know. I I I would have no I would have had no context for this in 1991. I was a sophomore or a junior in oh. high school. Right. I was listening to like a mix of Red Hot Chili Peppers, Public Enemy, and Eric Johnson. I had I would have no. Those were like my three in rotation tapes in 1991. Sure. So this would have been like, what? Why is this? Is the broken? Right. Um, as a sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old, uh, I so I couldn't. I can't even imagine trying to wrap my head around it. I would have. I would have taken years. And I. I'm pretty sure that when I tried to dissect this, or not dissect it, but just try to give it a shot years ago, I kind of. I probably gave it a listen probably wasn't paying all that close attention it just went by you know in whatever the time is and then i moved on because if you're not really paying attention it's gonna go by pretty quick i mean it's only a 39 minute record so why do you uh why do you think this album cover is so iconic i don't know like if you I, I had recognized it because I'd seen it often when you go like look at any of their merch or Facebook or anything. There's like tons of memes about it. Like I think there's a version that has like the Simpsons or whatever um, heads there instead. Um, I found that interesting. I don't know. Just as a, as a designer and a visually oriented person, I'm like, what about this is so compelling or so iconic? It was so different I, for 1991. I don't know. Um, maybe because it was unusual to put the band on the cover of an indie rock record. Hmm. And they're all That's pretty a good young, point. and they're you know, it. There's like normal normal guys having fun, not like a band trying to look like a band. Yeah, they're not trying to like put on a pose of like this is super serious. You know, they're hanging out at quarry swimming. Yeah. Um, so there's no like pretension to it. And I'm sure it was like not like that's what we're doing with this picture. It was just let's take a picture here because why not? <laughs> Oh yeah, it's not even in focus. Like when you blow it up high res, like it's all blurry. Right. <laughs> so whoever took the picture wasn't even <laughs> like it didn't even get it in focus. Um, actually, it was Will Oldham who took the picture. Um, 
who they would play in a band with later on. Um, but yeah. there's no band name. There's no title. It's just the photo. Right. I, and I think you're onto something with the fact that, you know, at least my perception is a lot of indie rock at that time was, you know, more artwork oriented, graphic oriented, not photos of the band. So it could be something that. So here's the question, Jay. Were the album better EP decent single? It's only six songs. I know. Well, I mean, six songs, but it gets the, you know, you're, you're pushing 40 minutes. Right. Um, which is fine. My personal take on it is it's it's an EP. I, I think I can listen to two tracks on this and pretty much get the gist of it and and appreciate what they did for 1991 and all the bands that followed them and, and sort of get the context and move on. Um, I realize there's a faction and probably be some, some comments about this of disappointment that we don't think this is brilliant, but uh, there's a reason it sold a thousand copies the first. So I'm more in that boat. Um, I, I I really was hoping that I would see the, I, I guess the relevancy would still hold up to me in 2019. Right. Um, that I would feel um, the, it would be more timeless, I guess. And it doesn't really feel like that. I hear a prototype for a lot of bands that I enjoy much more than this band. I agree with you. I'm at more of an EP. Um, I probably have, four songs three four songs so i think i like different things in this band than you do but we're at the same end point i what they influenced down the road was much more interesting to me than this record and i did sample a little bit of tweeze and i did not like the production that steve albini like the drums are very loud and Uh very um, dry and it's it's there's like it just did not sound good to me you should give it a yeah. just a cursory pass through sure i mean um, i think this record sounds really good i, I just i'm not a fan of that guitar tone um I, i'm sure I, it sounds like you're fine with it other people will probably love it not for me but that's more of a subjective thing i think right. overall production wise it it, it, it sound, sounds great there's a good chance we're going to lose our licenses in the rock criticism. <laughs> I don't know, man. We didn't love the uh, we didn't love the promise rank, so I, right. I think we're didn't really like you know EP rating for Slint. EP we rating didn't like for... uh, Jawbreaker. We weren't right. a huge fan like of that. But let's talk about Life, Sex, and Death again. <laughs> Oh, hey, all I can do is be honest. I mean, if you want to hear, I guess you could go to Pitchfork. I'm sure they love this record. All Music gave it five stars. Go read All Music. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we're pretty much the anti-Pitchfork <laughs> and not even trying to intentionally. And proud of it. Yeah. I think yeah. we're much more inclusive. I like to think that. I think we have, have a very large tent. I think the people who listen to this podcast are very open and not judgmental. So I enjoy that. I appreciate that. And I think that it's not elitist and snobby in any way. It's taken us nine years to get there, but I think we're starting to reach the point where certain records, although they don't sound stamped 
by the time period via their production, their presentation in terms of yeah. songwriting and in terms of where they land as being an influence rather than the result of an influence on a particular sound is starting to um, show its where basically. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, you, to be timeless, you have to be musical. Uh, you know, I think you can caveat like influence and context and appreciate that from an intellectual standpoint. But um, in a lot of cases here, we have the opportunity to listen to things for the first time with completely fresh ears where we are now. And that's the way we get, we need to react to them. I'm going to talk, mm-hmm. try to provide as much context as we can, but I, I'm not going to convince myself. I love a record that I don't love. Sure. Um, so it's got to work as music. Um, have some melody. Yeah. Or something gripping in the music itself. Yep. Uh, but you know, it's not, I mean, this isn't like it's not terrible like i didn't no, like no, no. turn this off i mean there's some records we review we're like oh my god i can't get through this fast enough maybe my expectations were too high i don't know that's the other problem is when you go in with huge you know accolades and expectations that have already been laid out sometimes you yep. can you instantly like start to recoil against those yep so uh you can direct all of your hate mail to <laughs> jason Stop. <laughs> no. Uh, you know where to go. Digmeoutpodcast.com. Maybe you can go suggest a record for our next poll. Yeah. Find another another pillar of the indie rock community that we can <laughs> chop down like a cherry tree. Sorry. Uh, no. Uh, Patreon. You can get there by going to digmeoutunion, dmounion.com. Become a patron. Vote in these polls. Get access to One our vote. 80s episodes. One vote separated. Yeah. This record One from the vote pack. to rule them all. And then, of course, you can join us at different tiers. You can get to vote in our roundtable polls. You can actually get to pick the subjects of our roundtables, like our upcoming episode, which is going to be very cool. You know what's most important? You can help us be the anti-pitchfork. There you go. We Support should, the mission. We should have another voice. T-shirts. It's just a middle finger, <laughs> and up and down that finger, it says pitchfork. That's our or the voice of the, the voice of the people, not the uh, elite uh, music journalists. Now that said, if Pitchfork wanted to put some money into this, <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I would struggle with that. Uh, I mean, they did give slight. a Jet album. Can Slate do a podcast? Yeah, they did give a Jet album a review of just a GIF of a monkey pooping. So clever. Yeah. They're, maybe maybe they're if discerning. Uh, the Intercept did a '90s podcast. <laughs> Intercept. I don't know. <laughs> What's our brand? What's our uh, our media? Wait, wait, don't brand. tell me on, on NPR. Oh, what? New edition, Terry Gross. <laughs> Stop. We're, no, we're not on NPR. Uh, 
But if NPR wanted to throw some of that NPR money and tote bags, oh, yeah. some of those tote bags at us. <laughs> Let's NPR bucks. Yeah. They're, they're like shroot bucks. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. It doesn't have to be specific to this episode. You can take the totality of all episodes when leaving that Any, comment. Anything helps people learn about, learn about the podcast. There you go. So, for Jay, I am Tim, and we are out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.